Welcome to Marrow Masters, sponsored by Farmer Sicklis and Jansen and Cadman, a Sanofi company. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 7 of our Marrow Masters podcast series focuses on chronic graft-versus-host disease and the long haul some survivors face. Unfortunately, chronic GVHD can last for months, even years. This season, we dig deep and hope to provide some relief. We talk to the experts, from healthcare professionals to survivors and caregivers, about the long-term struggles, setbacks, victories, treatment options, and more. We offer an abundance of resources and address all kinds of GVHD-related issues, including despair, advocacy, mobility, nutrition, sleep issues, caregiving, reproductive and sexual health, intimacy, and more. Our guests share their expertise and insight to help those frustrated and struggling with chronic GVHD to persevere and live their best life. Here's your host, Executive Director of the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, Peggy Burkhardt. Hello, everyone. Today, we welcome Dr. Sean Smith of Michigan Medicine. Dr. Smith joins us today to address how to keep mobility up and pace yourself for the long haul with chronic graft-versus-host disease. So Dr. Smith is a clinical associate professor at the Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Clinic at Michigan Medicine in Ann Arbor. He's dedicated to helping patients improve function as it relates to a variety of musculoskeletal, neurological, and cognitive deficits related to cancer and its treatment. So Dr. Smith, thank you so much for your time today. We hear so often about debilitating chronic graft-versus-host disease. Can you talk about restrictions and can you touch on scleroderma, something we also see as a really awful post-transplant side effect? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's it's a pleasure to be on and it's sort of an uncommon thing, right, to have a bone marrow transplant. And then a lot can happen good and bad from it. And sometimes those bad are uncommon. And so it's one of those things where it's rare to begin with. And it's also more rare to get some of these side effects. And then everybody is different. It's one of those cases where our medical field needs to understand this better. But also, you know, our our North Star can be guiding this by each individual patient and being patient-centered. What is the issue going on? And what do you want to accomplish? So you mentioned one of the aspects of graft versus host disease that can be the most, you know, disabling, debilitating, and affect quality of life the most, although all sorts of them can, and they all can make somebody debilitated or disabled. My job is to help restore what we say like function, you know, help somebody do things that they want to be doing. And you know, starting with scleroderma or sclerodermatous graft versus host disease. Uh, Sometimes it's called fascial, meaning like fascia or, you know, it's sort of between, it's this lining between the muscles. It can be from skin getting too thick. It can be from the muscles themselves getting inflamed and shortened. And it really can cause contraction at certain parts of the body, meaning they can't sort of stretch out as much as they want. And then that limits what somebody can do. That limits how strong they can be. If, say, your fingers and wrists are curled in, you know, you're not going to be able to grip something quite so strong. And so when this happens, this is in the chronic graft-versus-host disease phase. There's some graft-versus-host that's what we call acute early on, but that's not this. This is something that happens typically, but not always, you know, at least three and a half months or more after the bone marrow transplant. 
And what we know about this are, like I was saying, different parts of the body can get affected and there's inflammation that can go to those areas and people can get tight. Classically, what we see is their wrists and their fingers can curl in and get stiff. It can also affect the shoulders. It can make it so your elbows can't straighten out all the way. Your ankles don't move up and down. Or it can affect, you know, what we would say like the trunk. So the abdomen area, the back, all of that can get really tight. So it's hard to keep a strong core. It's hard to bend and twist and that sort of thing. And people will come with this tightness looking at what we can do for it, which can be challenging. But there are there are things we can do. Excellent. What are some of the things that you can do? <laughs> yeah. So this is something where I, I like to say we should throw the kitchen sink at the problem. What I think we know... Uh, and I say think because nothing is proven or definitive, and this is incredibly under-researched. But what I think we know is that the sooner we can intervene when things start to tighten, the better. So I apply a lot of the same thinking I would apply to a patient of mine who is badly burned. They can get scarred and contracted down. The quicker we are to try and stretch them out and reduce inflammation and scarring, Long-term, that's better than all the rehab in the world if we waited and didn't do that, right? It's the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, whatever the saying is, it's that. <laughs> yep. Now, and some of the ways that inflammation gets reduced is through the medications that the bone marrow transplant doctors would prescribe an anti-graft versus host disease treatment. And that might be a steroid or, you know, many other kind of newer treatments too. But, you know, the patients who then get to my clinic are the ones who didn't quite get stretched out in time or, you know, despite the graft versus host disease kind of calming down, they're still tight. And I would say the most common area of tightness is that wrist and finger area. Although there's, like I said, it can be anywhere. It can be in three places. It can, everybody's different. What I do and what people on my team and colleagues I work with do are we try to target areas of inflammation to get the tissue in the body as loose as it can be and sort of let it heal and not scar down until they sort of ride out this graft versus host disease wave, if that makes sense. Okay. And what we do, so one is we stretch. I know that sounds really simple, but we give people stretches to do. And sometimes if they're very tight, we help stretch them. Typically, the stretching part is not painful. It's just very tough for somebody to do on their own. And so a physical or occupational therapist can do that. You know, we will do things like if there's swelling, so there's edema is our medical term for it, um, not lymphedema, which some people hear about, but edema. The swelling is sort of the first sign of this coming on. So sometimes if we catch it in time, their arms would be puffy and we give them compression sleeves or stocks or wherever they're swollen to kind of reduce that. Because if there's this stagnant kind of inflammation, inflammatory fluid building up, then that's where scarring can come on. You know, just like if you were to burn yourself, you might swell because the body is sending all sorts of chemicals there to repair it. Body says, oh no, we got to fix this. The problem is that if you burn yourself really bad, the body kind of fixes it a little too good and you get really tight and you get scar tissue. Graft-first-host disease is where the new immune system thinks that there's a problem like this and tries to repair a problem that isn't there and then scars it down. I'm oversimplifying that a bit. And, you know, there's, if a hematologist is listening to that, they might be grinding their teeth. But <laughs> for all intents and purposes, you can think of it like that. We use compression. We stretch. Our therapists here, I'm, I'm fortunate to work with great occupational and physical therapists who have tools like laser that can break up scar tissue that's there. They have tools that are kind of handheld, almost like suction cup 
tools that can lift the skin just a bit and help fluid move a bit more and reduce fluid from building up there. Once we started using those, we found, you know, this is anecdotal and it's not been peer reviewed in a journal, but we found that people's measurements improved anywhere from 10% to double improvement as opposed to just regular stretching. We can get fancy. And again, this is sort of off-label, just applying some of the things we do for burn patients. What I found is that a lot of my patients with hand and wrist tightness, the inflammation, a lot of it, when I've gotten MRIs and other imaging, it's around the wrist area. So near where the carpal tunnel is, and that's this very tight area where a lot of tendons and nerves and everything are. And so if there's a lot of inflammation, you know, think of a tunnel that gets flooded with water, the car is not going to move through it very well. We can put a cortisone injection there to calm down inflammation or gel that's a steroid. And then using heat from an ultrasound machine kind of push that steroid into where the the skin is inflamed a lot and get that to loosen up a bit. So I usually, quite frankly, do a combination of all of that, recommend it all. And, you know, there's other things like um, if you've heard of paraffin baths, That's something that like at the nail salon, you might dip your hand in wax and then they get nice and warm and all that stuff. And then the wax hardens and breaks off. What that does, if you get a medical grade paraffin bath machine for scleroderma, actual scleroderma, and that's different than scleroderma GVHD. But what's been shown is that when you heat the hand up a lot and then you stretch it after that, the scar tissue is more bendy and you can actually get a lot more range of motion. So that's another thing we'll do. If it sounds like I'm scattershot and just listing off five or six things, that's because that's kind of what we have to do because we don't know what one thing works. And I know that if we let this fester for a long time, you might get stuck. And so maybe for one person, the paraffin baths and, you know, the stretching works. Maybe for another, it's the cortisone injection and the laser. I don't have time if somebody comes to my clinic tightening up to try one and then see if it works and try another and see if it works. We might try six things, and if one of them works, we're good, and we don't let this get to the point where somebody is stuck, if that makes sense. I think that sounds like a really great approach, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people listening will appreciate that as they're trying to figure this out. We see a, a lot of patients suffering in this way, and I'm just very appreciative that you're giving out this great advice. Let's talk about steroids for a bit. I know you touched on it, and I think I need to better understand. You're talking some topical, but are you also talking um, regular steroids as well? And how does that work uh, with your patients? So, yeah, good questions. I kind of, in my rambling there, I kind of talked about three different kinds of steroids. So there's the topical cream that an ultrasound probe with an occupational or physical therapist can kind of help penetrate below the skin. There's a steroid, like a cortisone shot that I would give in clinic. And then there's the oral steroids. Typically, that would be your bone marrow transplant doctor would say, hey, you have a graft-versus-host disease flare. You need to go on high-dose steroids if they think that you do. That's often the first line of treatment for these sorts of things. So there's kind of three forms of it. And I will say the first two that I mentioned, the gel and the injection, are very targeted and precise, and it doesn't cause a bunch of steroid to go throughout your body. And so even if you didn't do well on oral steroids, these other things may still help if your issue is really kind of focused on like the hand and wrist, for example. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you about that. Uh, Another thing I wanted to touch on, if we could, is maybe some fatigue issues and how you help your patients in your clinic with that. Yeah. Fatigue is incredibly common. It is 
caused by a lot of things. It's another one of those things where, you know, this one we can get a little more precise than what I was talking about before with the tightness. So people are fatigued after a transplant, you know, they're laid up in bed for a while, or maybe they get sick six months after the transplant and they're laid up in bed. They're anemic because their bone marrow has to sort of replenish. And so they have anemia, which makes them winded when they get up the stairs and just tired. They're on drugs that make them tired, you know, because they're nauseous and the nausea medications make them sleepy or pain medications. And they're just not getting outside as much, right? They're not getting exercise and doing the things they're used to. You know, those are some of the just scratching the surface of why patients can have fatigue. The two uh, ways to approach fatigue are one, remove anything that you can that's causing it, and two, treat it, if that makes sense. So, What's causing it? If it's your anemia, with time and an iron supplement, that will get better. But are you sleeping okay? Is something keeping you awake? Is pain or you have to go to the bathroom a lot? You know, are those keeping you awake? Try to address those with your doctor. You know, or it might be as simple as you're reading your phone right before bed and you shouldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Or you're not having consistent sleep times. Are you on drugs that make you drowsy? If so, do you need to be on them? Talk to your doctor, you know, and and kind of remove those, right? Give yourself the best chance. Do you snore? You might have sleep apnea. Get tested. That's treatable. You, You might find your energy shoot through the roof after that's treated. The other thing, if we sort of look at all of these things, and, and I should say, like, if you're depressed, that's another thing that can cause fatigue. There are other medical things you should get to. If we address all those and you're still really tired, what's been shown time and again to be the number one treatment for fatigue is exercise. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the studies for exercise are a bit unrealistic. And what I mean by that is they'll say, we put 30 people in an exercise lab five days a week and had them work out for two or three hours and they felt more energy. And it's like, well, yes, of course you did. But nobody, you know, I have kids, I can barely work out one day a week sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But probably the balance is trying to exercise three times a week for 45 minutes at a time. And after a bone marrow transplant, your what you consider exercise might be different than what you used to. And it's just a matter of getting your heart rate up, feeling a sweat, breaking a sweat, doing that for a half hour, 45 minutes three days a week, not consecutive. If you do that for a couple of months, you're going to feel better. Okay. The second most effective thing is sort of being mindful and coping with it. So there's actually some psychologic approaches we can take to fatigue and helping people deal with it and manage their day better. And they found that it actually helps their energy. And meditation could be part of that too. And then the third sort of treatment that sometimes works A lot of times doesn't, but when it works, it really works as medication. So like a stimulant or something to keep somebody awake, there's a certain group of people where that can really help. So that's something that you would talk to your doctor about and it's an individual thing. I think this also relates so well to another episode this season with Heather Jim of Moffitt Cancer Center. That conversation is all about sleep issues. So I'd encourage our listeners to check that out as well. Yeah. I also think of uh, Dr. Smith, a wonderful uh, caregiver who, uh, Jim is his name, and he took good care of his wife, Nancy. And for her, just one day being able to walk to the mailbox was a huge accomplishment. And then the next day, they went a little bit further. And then the next day, and just building up to it. And he said, you know, those were her little milestones. And before she knew it, she was going around the block again. So I think it's really important for people to remember, too, that you don't need to do two miles the first day you know, build up to it. And we see that all the time with our patients. Anything you want to add about that? 
I totally agree. You know, it, it's really hard sometimes for somebody to see day to day, like I'm not getting any better, I'm not getting any better, but I often tell them to look back to where they were two months ago and see where they were. And usually they say, okay, I, I, I was doing better. Yeah. You know, I am doing better now. So yeah, that's the way to kind of look at it. And I think the walking is so important. Uh, we have another gal who's very close to our nonprofit and she's a podcaster as well, Jen. And she talked about just doing laps in the hospital, even after her transplant, just how important that was to her just to be able to go in circles and just build up her strength. So, you know, anything you're doing is better than nothing. Yeah. A person without a bone marrow transplant, if they lay in bed, will lose 1% of their muscle mass per day. Wow. Up to 20, 25%. Really? But when you have a bone marrow transplant, your muscle and, and some other medical conditions, your muscles break down even faster than that. So there's all sorts of studies about when you're hospitalized for the transplant, the benefit of moving and exercise and less length of stay and, you know, tubes and lines and all that stuff. So it's, it's really important. I just have another thought. We're going to do a podcast later this year on some of the things you can do before transplant, uh, preventive type things. You know, mobility, it makes me think of what people could be doing before their transplant kind of to gear up, to get ready. Is there anything you might want to add on that, you know, in pre-transplant to maybe make some of these things not so difficult post-transplant? Yeah, that kind of funny word we give that is called prehabilitation. So you're preventatively addressing a problem. You know, in most prehabilitation studies, it's, you know, if you walk more before going into something, you're going to walk more after. You know, it's very simple. It's not like you have to do an Ironman or you have to lift, you know, deadlift 400 pounds. Be walking. I would say for bone marrow transplant in particular, try to really engage your core muscles and I include within that your hips and even your, your quad muscles, so your thigh muscles. So I'm a big fan of exercises like Pilates. Uh, those don't stress your spine and they really engage those muscles. So doing as much as you can because with a bone marrow transplant and then if you develop graft versus host disease with steroids that come with it, the core, the quad and the glute, the butt muscles are the ones that go the quickest. And those are the ones that sort of keep you up and walking the most. And, and they are so important with balance and all sorts of things. So getting those as strong as you can going in is, is key. Oh, thank you so much. This is great. Well, I think we're getting ready to wrap it up here. Is there any closing remarks, anything else you might want to add? People maybe just feel like, oh, I, I've gotten weaker. My legs are shriveled up and they're just not as big as they were. But seeing a physical therapist or somebody else who can help guide you through exercises can be just essential. It's really hard to do on your own when you're tired and all that. But if you have that appointment, that can help you. Um, know that steroids that are so commonly prescribed for graft-versus-host disease, they're not the kind of steroids that, you know, the baseball players would take to hit home runs. They're the opposite. They make your muscles weaker. They make your thigh muscles and your butt muscles in particular weaker. And those are the muscles you use for getting up off a chair or a low seat. Those are the muscles that if you slip on a banana peel and start to fall down, they keep you upright. So really target those. Know that those are weaker a lot of times, not because it's your fault or you're being lazy, but because of what the transplant or the treatment did to you. And then work with somebody to, to get stronger in that area. And, and that's key. Well, that's fantastic. I, I hope people are listening and feeling better about their situation. 
Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Smith. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I know there's a, a lot uh, you know, I can talk more about, but I hope this gives people a, a sense of what rehabilitation can do for them. Well, if there's anything else you want to add, I'd say go for it. <laughs> you know, I would just say sort of the two things are one, if it feels like it's helping, do it. So, you know, I, I go back to you know, a patient with the tightness from the scleroderma, you know, he was a waiter and the hand that he carried his tray in was much more movable because it was being stretched. And so he would alternate how he carried the tray and he felt like that was moving his wrist. Ah, good. There was a younger kid would hang on the monkey bars in the summer to get his motion back, you know, things like that, you know, that you're going to figure out that no doctor can tell you, you'll know better. Recognize that. Also recognize that when you're trying to get stronger, sometimes you'll have days where you just you feel like, oh, I was doing so good two days ago and I'm not doing good now. And that's okay. The gas tank emptied because you you worked so hard. And in time, that gas tank is going to get bigger and more full so it doesn't empty as easily. But if you're feeling run down, take that day off to, you know, walk around your house. Don't just lay in bed, but you don't have to be exercising. But then when you feel like you can do it, get back at it. Well, that's such great advice for all of us. (laughs) <laughs> Give ourselves a break. <laughs> yeah, to my own advice. Yeah, I should, I should. Oh, this is great. Thank you again, Dr. Smith, for your time. Thanks for having me. This is this is great. This has been the Marrow Masters Podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them via text, email, or social media. Don't miss an episode of our show. Follow the Marrow Masters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. To connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes. The Marrow Masters Podcast is produced by Jagged Detroit Podcasts.